Let's pray and then we'll ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word as we dive into this last message on marriage according to God. Holy Father, in Jesus' name, bless us now. God, I pray that you would use this message to speak to our hearts. Lord, we need you so desperately in a desperate way. God, there's nothing I can say. There's nothing I can do. Only you can do it. And Lord, now we pray that you would move in our service, take the truth of your word and change hearts and lives. Bless us. Bless the reading of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I want you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll be there in just a few moments. But before we go to this verse that will anchor the final message in our series, Marriage According to God, I want you to think back for just a few minutes. And maybe this is your first opportunity to be a part of the series. You can go to YouTube to get the rest. Make sure you do that. Get called up. Understand everything that has been taught here in Scripture. Um, But there has been a lot of private conversation and a lot of private testimony from the families within our church about ground that's been made up. There's been some uh, marriages that have gotten some help, a drink of cool water, some children that are even noticing a difference in their mom and their dad and the attitude and the atmosphere of their home. And for that, we say, praise the Lord. Uh, To him, we give all the honor, all the glory. And I think for me personally, the most uh, strong impact from all of this study comes when we embrace the truth that our marriage is an illustration. Our marriage is truly more than anything. It is an illustration, a covenant, a promise that's been made between a man and a woman and God. And in that, the man and the woman have made that promise to God to love each other as Christ loved the church and to be submissive, to obey as the church obeys Christ, that there's a beautiful, healthy balance of love and respect and appreciation, but that at the end of the day, all of the little intricate details about marriage come down to one thing. It comes down to my marriage is supposed to be a display or a live action drama of God's love for me. When we embrace that truth and when we hold that near and dear to our heart, that will change our lives. It can't help but elevate the marriage. It takes it out of earthly realm and it lifts it or it elevates it to a divine place that my marriage really at the end of the day isn't about me. That my marriage at the end of the day isn't even about my comfort or my satisfaction. And really, it rips out a lot of pride. It rips out a lot of selfishness. And when both parties in the marriage are 100% sold out to that idea, both parties, the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, are sold out to the idea that their marriage isn't about them and their earthly happiness, but it's about their marriage being a display of God's love to others and even to their children. And at the end of the day, everything in my marriage is about bringing honor and glory to God in every aspect. The way I handle money in my house should honor the Lord. The way I talk to my wife in my house when nobody else is listening should honor the Lord. The way I'm faithful to church with my family should honor the Lord. The way I do business and go to school and all the things that I do in my life that pass through the bounds of my marriage, all of it at the end of the day, has to point back to giving God glory. That changes everything about our marriage. And we have absolute confirmation from scripture. I think that's the most important thing for us to embrace is this is not necessarily opinion, but it is the idea that God has for marriage. God designed marriage. God instituted marriage. He owns the idea of marriage and he sets the limits and the boundaries of marriage. All of it comes from him and belongs to him. Now, (coughs) excuse me, we've learned or we've been reminded that scripture gives us a designation as the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Give me just a moment. I'm going to turn my mic off. I'm going to cough and then I'm going to come back right with you. Amen. Now, we've learned or we've been reminded that God's word gives you and me as the children of God a designation. That designation is as the bride of Christ. 
I talked to someone recently and they're just brand new in the faith. They just got saved not too long ago in one of our services. And, and this person was talking to me about the marriage series and, and they said, Pastor, I did not know, it had never occurred to me, I had never heard that I, I as, as a Christian, as a believer, that I am in the role or the position as the bride. And, and that Christ Jesus is in the position of the bridegroom. And then that's the depth of the love that he has for me. It, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing when the revelation, the truth of God's word is ignited in somebody's heart. That, that God loves them to that level. That God loves them to that extent that it's that personal. And for a lot of us, that's not new news. We understand scripture. We know what the bridegroom and the bride are. And we've read the Song of Solomon. We know all of the intricate details of what that means. But praise God for some people, it's brand new. And it's milk from the word of God that they're just learning to palatize. If we stopped right there, if we really embraced what that means to be the bride of Christ and he our bridegroom, we could shout ourselves silly until next Tuesday. Praise God, you're the bride of Christ. He loves you to that extent, and that is the designation that he's given. Now, last week, it was a, a very powerful illustration of the love that the bridegroom has for the bride. And we look to an incredible story of Hosea and Gomer, a, a story about the limit of marriage. And we ask the question, what is the limit of love in marriage? What is the limit of compassion in a marriage? What is the limit of forgiveness in a marriage? And God himself used his man, the prophet Hosea, to demonstrate how he felt his sentiment towards his own children, Israel. There are two harlots, if you will, in that story. There is the wife, Gomer, who goes back into a life of sin. And then there are the people, Israel. And, and God uses the life of Hosea to display just how far he's willing to go to see his child or his bride come back home. It's a beautiful story about the limits of that love. But in this closing sermon, I want us to really take a, a deep look and take a step back and consider the qualities and consider the condition of the bride. We've looked a lot to who Jesus is. And I even had someone say, I, I thought this was a, a series on marriage. And you've talked a whole lot about Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus is and how much Jesus loves me. What are you going to tell me about how to have less stress at home? Well, here, understand this in love, that until you understand this part of how much God really loves you, and still, until you understand that your marriage is to be that illustration, nothing at home will ever be right. There's no way for you to emulate or to display the love that Christ has for the church unless you know just how much Christ loves the church. And every time I go back to the word and I see how much he loves me and how much he cares for me, it forces me to realize that I do not love my wife as much as I could. It helps me understand that every day I want to know more about what it means to be a good husband and to love my wife the way Christ loves the church. And I want us to look at what Christ did in selecting his bride. You have to understand this and you have to have this absolutely secure in your own heart. Uh, never get over the fact that God chose you. Amen. Let me say that again very clearly. Never get over the fact, never let it just be happenstance, that God chose you in love. Understand clearly, friend, you did not choose God. You couldn't do it if you wanted to. He came to you. He came to you. You didn't choose him. Uh, your decision to marry your husband, your decision to marry your wife, if you'll think back, it was not some robotic, uninvolved happenstance. I didn't just wake up one day and say, well, I'm going to go find my wife. Yeah, that one. 
No, that's not how it happened. It was an involved emotional response. And it was where the two decided together that, hey, there's something more here than, hey, how you doing? There's more than just, uh, I like you and I like hanging out with you. There is potential here for something really special. Why in the world would we expect God's love to be uninvolved? Why would God's love be uh, robotic in nature? God did not just happen to come up with the idea before he made worlds, he chose you as his bride. Your decision to marry your husband and your wife wasn't that robotic, uninvolved happenstance. So don't assume that God's love is the same. It's so wonderful and it's so powerful. And it was a choice, praise God. He looked through time and eternity and in his sovereignty as God, he handpicked his bride. And in that love, you have to be careful here. Don't get off the rails. It boasts this love that God has for whosoever will may come. It invites all to believe, but it's anchored in the foreknowledge of who the bride would be. It has to say this, God chose you, he chose you the moment that he decided to open the portal of redemption through his son Jesus. And because God has never had anything occur to him, listen now, we're getting in deep water. God has never had anything occur to him. He's always just known. That's who God is. And so in love and in grace and in mercy, he knew who you would be before he even made worlds. And he picked his bride. He said, I'll send my son and I will handpick them who will believe. Whosoever will may come. But he already knew who you would be. But it gets so much better than that. It gets so much better than even that he would choose me and that he would love me and that he would send his son Jesus to die for me. But Romans 5, 8 is where we'll be this morning. Go now to that fifth chapter. There's a verse here and it's really the anchor of this idea and this thought. And here it is. But God commandeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet Sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't have to go through a 12-step program and get squeaky clean before I came to Jesus. I didn't have to turn over a new leaf and start doing yoga before I came to Jesus. I didn't have to go see a therapist or light a candle or talk to a priest before Jesus radically changed my life. He took me right where I was as a sinner and he died for me. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. You can never get over this. And listen, if you're not saved here today, some of that may not make sense to you, but it speaks to the potential of what God can do in your life. You see, Christ died for sinners just like me. Just like me. I'll use me today. I'll use Winston Parish. I'll use myself today as an example. Here's some things you gotta get about me. I don't have an Instagram and I don't have a Facebook, so let me just offer my bio right here. I am a sinner saved by grace. But understand me clearly, this is a little brief bio. In terms of who Jesus Christ is, and in terms of his love and his grace and his mercy, before Jesus came to me, I was useless. I had nothing to offer. I was a dead, dying corpse, and I had no hope. I was guilty. And I was hateful and I was bound for everlasting destruction and understand me now if that destruction would have come and if God would have allowed me to die without opening my eyes to the truth of who Christ was, then God would have still been holy and righteous and good and just and merciful. God did not have to save me to be God. God could have left me right where I was broken and destitute and bound for hell, sitting in a blue chair, the pastor's grandson, and God would have still been holy. But in grace 
and in mercy and in love on a Wednesday night in the little old building on the second row on the right side. God the Holy Ghost came by my way and he took that dead dying corpse and he opened up his eyes so that he could see Jesus and he convicted his heart so he'd feel shame and regret and he said, son, you need to be saved. And that day, that night, I got gloriously born again. There's my bio. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I deserved hell and nothing more. That's what I deserved. I deserved hell and nothing more. But Jesus loved me. He cared for me. And he saved me. And if that's ever happened to you, there might be just right now in this moment a little something welling up on the inside that says, praise God, I know what he's talking about. I got saved too. Praise the Lord. He saved sinners. We have to understand that. We have to know that God is God and God knows everything about you. God knows everything you'd ever say, everything you'd ever do, everything you'd ever think. He knew every place you'd ever go, every drug you'd ever take, every drink you'd ever drink. God knows everything about everybody. Yet here you are today and you're a child of the most high God. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords knows your name and even better yet, you know him. So how could this be? Because Christ died for sinners. God sent his son Jesus to die for people just like Winston. But understand the story of Winston's brokenness and the story of Winston's sin and the story of Winston's failures and the story of Winston's imperfections. Do not start when he turns 18. That story doesn't begin when I get the right to vote or the right to drink or the right to go in the military. That story began the moment I was born. I was born broken. And because of Adam and Eve and their decision, I was born imperfect. And I was born shattered. And I was born compromised. Because from birth, I was born a sinner. Nothing of worth, nothing of value. Until God, the Holy Ghost, came by. And then he added the worth and he added the value. You say, that makes me feel really low and down and bad about myself. No, praise God. If you know what it means to be free from your sin, you can sit here today and rejoice in the fact that God has added value, that God has added purpose and that God loves you. But know this, I was born broken. And you can go to scripture and in so many different places, you can find that in his ministry, Jesus took imperfect, broken people. I said imperfect, broken people. And he loved them. And he changed them. And he used them for his glory. One of the greatest examples that I love to study, I love character studies in the Bible. And one of the greatest characters I find, and I find so much of myself in him, is a man named Peter. If you're new to your Bible, if you've just been saved and in the faith for a few weeks, uh, just very quickly understand that Peter was one of Jesus' original disciples. And although he was a key leader in the early church and uh, he had so many things attributed to him and what he did for the Lord, he was far from perfect. In fact, if you understand scripture clearly, Peter failed in several ways. He disappointed God even after he became a believer. And often I find so much of myself in Peter. Peter is such an important person for us to understand because you have to understand what Peter had access to. I've talked about this before. I have been plumb jealous of Peter. To know what he saw, to know the meals he went to, to see the things in scripture that he saw. And he got to see him firsthand and I didn't get to go. And I've had moments where I say, Lord, why could I have not been a part of that group? Why didn't I get to go to the Transfiguration Revival Jubilee? Why didn't I get to be on the boat when the storm came? God knows when we need to be born and he had it sovereignly planned out. But I've been plumb jealous of Peter before because of what Peter got to experience. Peter had a front row seat to Jesus in ways that you and I don't even understand. But we have the revelation, according to Peter, that's even more short, the word of prophecy in our laps today. But Peter got to see and hear things that is hard to even describe. And he was there for so much of what we read even in the New Testament. Yet Peter himself was a broken man. Peter had major issues. 
There are so many opportunities to see this in Scripture, but let me just give you a few of them. Understand that the very night when Jesus was about to be betrayed, he told his disciples, he told them that they would fall away or they would be offended on account of what was getting ready to happen to Jesus. Peter said that all the other disciples may leave you, Lord. They may fall away. They may be offended for your sake, but not me. Lord, I'll stay right here with you to the very end. No matter what it costs, no matter what it takes, Lord, Master, I'm going to stay put right here with you. Matthew 26, the 31st verse. This is a little bit of the exchange that happens between our Lord and Savior and Peter. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And listen to Peter. He says, uh, uh, though all these men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. And Jesus said to Peter, verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter said unto him, though I should die with thee, Yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said the disciples. And all of them joined in with what Peter said and said, Lord, no, we won't leave you. We won't fall away. We won't be offended. We'll stick with you all the way. You go to the 75th verse of that same chapter. And Peter's denied his Lord, his Savior, his Master. And then he remembers the word of Jesus, which said unto him, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out. And wept bitterly. And Peter did exactly what Jesus told him he would do. He cursed and he swore that he didn't know Jesus. I don't know him. What are you talking about? I don't know Jesus of Nazareth. I didn't come in with him. And he denies him three times. And Peter already had cut off the ear of a Roman soldier in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think now, this is Peter, one of the chosen, one of the disciples. He knows Jesus really well. He's following him around. But he's cutting ears off of people and he's cussing and he's denying that he even knows who Jesus is and he's broke bread with him and he knows what Jesus looks like and he's walked many a mile with him and yet here you have this man who's just absolutely broken. If, if you really study out the personality of Peter, I believe you find someone that has anger issues. I believe Peter had control issues. I believe Peter had a temper and a temper that would just pop off out of control. He's a big, burly, multi-generational fisherman. I, now, don't be offended by this because I represent. But I, when I think of Peter and when I hear Peter talk in my head, he's an he's a old mountain boy from Western North Carolina. Don't get mad. But that's who Peter is in my brain. When we get to heaven, obviously it'll be different. I'll get to hear what Peter's voice sounds like for real. Have you ever thought of that? We'll get to know what Peter actually sounds like. Praise God. But, but in my head right now, he's a good old boy from Western North Carolina. And now there's a difference. I didn't call him a redneck. He's a hillbilly. There's a difference. That's who he is in my head. He's got that, you ain't going to tell me what to do. I got this figured out. I, I drive a Ford or Chevy for those just... Don't get messed up there. Or Toyota. And I shoot a 243. I got this thing figured out. But if you cross that line, it's, it's on. It's on. You're in trouble. Peter's got that in him. And yet Jesus handpicked this man to be on the A team that was going to take the church and start. That's who Jesus picked. And you can see multiple opportunities in Scripture to see exactly who Peter is. But if you go to Acts chapter 10, you'll see proof, proof that Peter has a hard time with commitment. Peter has a hard time with instant obedience to God. It takes Peter time to process things, process things out in his own mind. I, I've even had good old boys tell me this, and I've said it myself. I got to get this right in my mind. Hold on a second. Give me just a second. Hold on. I got to get this right in my mind. Peanut, you know what I'm talking about? I got to get this right. Give me a second. 
Let me process this out. He knows who Jesus is. He knows what God expects of him. God comes to him and tells him what to do. And instead of being instantly obedient, Peter goes, well, hold on a second. Let me think this through. Let me, let me make sure I'm comfortable. That's exactly who Peter is. You go to Luke chapter 9, you go to the transfiguration of Jesus, all that glory, all that power, all that anointing. There's God the Father in the form of the Shekinah glory on the mountain. There's Elijah, there's Moses, there's Jesus in his holy vestiture. He's in the glory and he takes Peter and James and John and lets them see it. He lets them bear witness to his holy vestiture and Peter misses the whole thing. Peter is literally in the greatest revival, jubilee, celebration, listen now, that has ever happened on earth. Jesus was in the fashion that he would be in heaven on top of Mount Hermon. And Peter missed the whole thing. He, he gets excited. I know he's Baptist. He's shouting. He's blessed. And then he walks up to the preacher and he says, uh, hold on a second now. Jesus, master, teacher, preacher, can, can we stop? And, and, and can we just build some little tabernacles? Can we just build some little tents and stay up here on this mountain? This is really good. And Peter just takes this holy moment and makes it all about him and all about his perception and about what he thinks needs to happen. Instead of Jesus rebuking him, he just says, Peter, we can't stay here because there's work to be done. There's a man with an unclean spirit on the other side of the mountain and he needs us to come. Peter didn't get it. Peter had a hard time really understanding everything that Jesus was even teaching and preaching. Yet, that's exactly who Jesus picked. He's part of that team of disciples. And Peter was the one walking on water. And the Bible says that Peter gets out on the water. He's walking on the water. But the Bible points to the fact that he was afraid. And he was crying. And Jesus even asked him in the scripture, he says, why did you start to doubt, Peter? And then he gives him the tag. These are out of... The, this is out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus. He asked Peter, why are you a man of such little faith? How would you like for Jesus to say that to you? Winston, ye of little faith. What are you doing doubting? But I, I promise you, I've had days in my life where I've gone, Lord, this cannot be it. There's no way. I'm getting afraid, I'm crying out, and I don't know what to do. And he's just beckoning me to take the next step. I find a lot of myself in Peter, a broken man who had so many issues. But my favorite part of Scripture to read about Peter was the day that Peter got saved. The day that Peter saw Jesus for who he really was. Matthew 16, the 13th verse when Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi or the borders of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I the son of man am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist and some Elias, that's Elijah, and others Jeremiah, that's the prophet Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, listen now, this will bless you, this broken man with problems and issues. Listen to what Jesus says to him. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's who Jesus chose to use as an example to start the church. Amen. Doubting dejected, depressed, down and out, little old Peter who had all kinds of problems. 
who was broken, who had issues. And yet, the Lord Jesus chose him to begin the process that you're a part of to this day. Listen now, you're in this chapter. If you belong to Jesus and you're saved and on your way to heaven, say amen. Amen. Praise God. Jesus is talking about you in Matthew chapter 16. And upon this rock, I will build my church. You say, well, this is Trinity Baptist Church. Yeah, but it belongs to Jesus. It don't belong to the Baptist denomination. It doesn't belong to the Sexton family or the parish family. I said it belongs to Jesus. He is the head of the church. And he promised, Peter, and he promised you that the gates of hell shall not prevail. So you have to take all of this in. Peter's failures, Peter's sin, Peter's brokenness are one thing. All of us can see it. All of us can identify with it. All of us can understand it. But it's a completely different thing to look to Jesus and how he responded to Peter's sin, Peter's failures, and Peter's brokenness. He chose him and he loved him. And he nurtured him and he corrected him and he built him up and he prepared him for a task. And understand this, that where you find your weakness in Peter's story, I find mine. And where you find your harsh reality in Peter's story, I find mine. But understand that God has already responded to your weakness. God has already responded to your sin. God has already responded to your failure and the desire of your flesh kept unchecked. We are broken people. Say that with me. We are broken people, just like Peter and just like your pastor. Broken people. And so if people are what it takes to make a marriage, if it takes a husband, a a man... A man can only be the husband. A husband can only be the man. Who can only be married to a woman. Who can only be the wife. God's design. So if that's the elements that make up the marriage, the man being the husband, the wife being the lady of the home. And if it's a broken husband with problems and issues like me, and if it's a broken lady with problems and issues like my wife. Then how did we get ourselves backwards when we married our spouse that we were marrying a perfect person? Where did that idea come from? I'm talking about the perfect choice. I believe that God, for everyone that is supposed to be married, God has a perfect choice for who you are to marry in his will. I believe that. I'm not talking about his perfect choice. I'm talking about the people. Where did we get off the the, the trail, the the, the rail just a little bit here, and, and start assuming that because we got married, that we were marrying perfect people? Well, we have a beautiful love story. It plays well on Instagram, but then the reality at home is different. And what's happening are so many people are getting married and having children, and they have all of these expectations of a perfect life and a perfect marriage. But you can't have a perfect life and a perfect marriage without perfect people. And the Bible says that all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. All of us are broken people. So if God instituted that people would be part of the marriage and it would take a man and a woman to be husband and wife, then he knew before he made worlds that he was putting broken people together. Right? So then why is there no grace? Why is there no mercy? Why is there no love and no compassion? It's because we're not displaying the love of Christ In our marriage, this pot, it's a beautiful pot, isn't it? Oh, I like a responsive crowd. Isn't it a beautiful pot? (laughs) Praise the Lord. Well, I love the color. It almost reminds me of the Trinity rain color. It's a little off. 
here, here you have a pot. And yes, I have a hammer in my hand. And there's probably 15 or 20 different ways to illustrate this granddaddy, but this was what was in my heart, so I'm going to do it. Sometimes I think we see ourselves. Pay attention now. Don't, don't let this outweigh the, the truth of what God's trying to teach us this morning. Sometimes I think we look at ourselves in the mirror, and I'm not talking about physically, I'm talking about spiritually. And we see a perfect vessel. I don't see any imperfection. It's useful. It'll hold water. It'll hold soil and a tree. You can fill it with lobster, macaroni, and cheese, and it'll serve its purpose. Praise the Lord. But the truth is, this is not an accurate depiction of who I am. It's just not. This is too perfect. This is too well put together. But it does represent me. And understand that the day I was born, in March of 1990, at the old Mission Hospital campus, the day I was born, uh, that very large, long baby, as cute as it was, and as much hair as it had on its head, if you'd have looked deeply, if you could have looked at the soul of that little child, you'd have seen very clearly that there was a fracture already in the heart of that little child. And it's a fracture that ran the circumference of his entire heart. He was already broken. He was already uh, with a defect. It was a spiritual defect. It was a factory setting that he had been born with. And it's a, a setting called broken and in desperate need of a savior. And then that little boy grows up and he gets older. And then decisions start happening. Things start getting said out of that little boy's mouth that his mama and daddy would have never imagined he would say. He even starts to show his character a little bit at two and at three years old. There's some chips already starting to show. You try to take a cookie out of that two-year-old's mouth and see what happens. It's dangerous. Where does that come from? It comes from his little fractured heart. But already, look, already there's some ugly stuff starting to show at two years old. He says no, and, and he'll do things like stuff everything underneath the bed and tell mom and dad the, house, the, 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 the room's clean. And that grows, and he becomes a teenager. And then some real decisions start being made. This is the first time that little boy comes in contact with a Playboy magazine from a neighbor across the street. It's starting to show. It's starting to show. And then he gets his heart broken for the first time and someone lies on him at school and a friend breaks his heart and all these things of life just start happening. And before you know it, what seemed innocent or what seemed great and what seemed perfect, it just starts becoming little broken pieces. Little broken pieces. And even while this is happening, there's a God who in grace and mercy is being long-suffering. And he's saying, aren't you proud of him? Don't you love him? Well, he's broken and he's ugly and he doesn't serve any purpose and there's no function and more sin and more decisions. And before you know it, there's nothing but a broken person. There's no function. There's just little broken pieces. Sin and choices. The weight of the world. Parties that he should have never been at. Trips he should have never gone on. An absence from God's house that lasted way too long. And all that's left are broken little pieces. But Miranda, baby, we come help me for a second? Miss Pam, make sure she doesn't have a knife. <laughs> Look, 
I know that I said that I'm a man of integrity and I know that I said that I would be a good man and that I would try to be everything that I could be. But understand that this is what you married. She married a broken man. She married an imperfect man. She married a man that had made decisions that would even affect her and she didn't even know it. And this is what she's left with. And as beautiful as she is and as wonderful as she is, her own testimony to me and our preparation for this marriage series has been, oh, I wish we could have known this earlier in our marriage. I wish we could have told more people the truth that God's revealed to us. And as wonderful as she is, her own testimony is, this is her life, a broken person. But Miranda married an imperfect man just like Peter. And maybe there's some people sitting in here and you're married. And there's been some decisions that have caused fracture. Maybe there's some decisions that you've made for your family and it's done nothing but break. And when you go home, you don't see a happy marriage. You don't see a happy home. You just see broken little pieces. I'm here to tell you today that this is not the end. We're going to turn off all the lights. No lights in this sanctuary. And I want you to draw your attention to the screen as we talk about the broken little pieces. Thank you, babe. Still be spoken. 
These pieces are broken and we have to live with that reality. They're broken. They're shattered. And if you listen to what these pieces say, they say things like this. They say things like, it's gone too far. Now you have to get a divorce. These broken pieces are what comes to a husband or to a wife at three o'clock in the morning when the devil whispers the plan to your heart. If you'll just wait till the kids are old enough and they leave for college, then it, the pressure will be off and you can just give up and y'all can separate and it can be over. That's what these pieces say. These pieces are the text message that went too far. The relationship at work that should have never been. These broken pieces are reality. And they hurt. And they're sharp. And they'll cut. And it won't just cut you. It'll cut anybody that's living in the house. Children. Parents. Grandparents. A church family. If you notice in the video, it took both people participating. They had to move to the same side of the table so they could have the same discussion and begin the process of seeing broken pieces be put back together. And in the shattered mess and the shattered dreams and shattered expectations, there looks to be no hope. It's over. And really, if you'll just come to the table and say, God, I can't do it and allow him to do his work, what will happen is the broken pieces, he'll gather them up and he'll take them and he'll put them back in the kiln and he'll refire the broken pieces that you thought was over, that you thought was too far gone. And with his hands of love and grace and mercy and restoration, he'll make something beautiful that has a purpose and it has an identity. And all over you'll see the handprints of the potter who can make your marriage exactly what he wants it to be. But quit acting like this is how we really start out and realize that the broken pieces are his to do whatever he wants to do with. The question now comes to you. Are you willing? Husbands, are you willing to grab your wife by the hand and maybe for the first time ever get out of your seat and come find a place? We're gonna have to spread out all over this sanctuary. But husbands, would you do that? We're gonna close our marriage series with a prayer. We're gonna pray all over all these pictures that are here, but we wanna pray over every marriage in the church. And if you're willing and you're able in body, would you grab your spouse by the hand? And would you come find a place and just tell the Lord you'll be broken together and allow him to do the rest. Deacons and leadership team, Sunday school teachers lead the way. Husbands, I challenge you. I know it may be out of your comfort zone. I know it may not be your personality, but would you lead your wife and come pray for her? Pastors, I want you to join me. young men right here on this front row how about standing up and if anybody can't kneel you can come right here to one of these benches on the front row pastor nathan join me up here pastor ralph pastor allen
Miranda, come join me if you can, baby. I want all of our staff to come. I know it takes time to do this, but I believe it's worth it. All the marriages that want to, all the husbands and wives that can. I love to see that. There comes a little baby with mom and daddy. I love it. That's our only hope. You're not here for a show, remember. We're here for participation. We're all desperate for the Lord to do what only He can do. Now, Holy Father, in Jesus' name, we come back into Your presence. And God, we're thankful for who You are and for what You are. Our ever-present help in a time of trouble. And Lord, no doubt there are people that are in this altar now or who are sitting in chairs or worshiping online. And Lord, their marriage is in shambles. There's pressure that no one knows about. There's problems and there's issues. There's financial problems and there's children with needs and there's pressure that the world pushes every day on these homes. And God, once again, we come into your house on your day and we ask you to do what only you can. God, that you would breathe on every family, every husband, every wife, every home. God, my heart is that not one more family in our church would ever taste the bitter cup of divorce. God, if it be your perfect will, God, to keep every family together. God, that children wouldn't have to split Christmas between mommy and daddy. God, that there wouldn't be a heartache and a pain in the family. But Lord, that you would restore and that you would heal and that you would speak peace and comfort. And right now in this moment, we speak the name of Jesus over the marriages of this church. And God, we ask you to do what only you can do. God, we pray over every wayward husband that should be here today leading his family. Go get him, Lord. Convict him, God. Go bring him back, God. Go get him. Bring him back into the fold before it's too late. God, for the wayward wife, God, we pray now that you'd go get her, tender her heart. God, that she'd remember her first love. And Lord, that she'd come back into the family, the family of faith, and even her own home. Lord, we're desperate for you. We're desperate for you. And Lord, now we submit ourselves as broken people, fractured by the weight of sin in this world. We lay ourselves in your hands. Mold us, shape us, and make us what you want us to be for your glory. It's in Jesus' name the church prays. Amen. 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 Miss Angie's going to continue to play. You take plenty of time to pray. Please go back to your seat as you can. God bless you so very much. Hey, granddaddy, hang out right here with me. Let's get him a mic. I feel like we need to do something before he leaves. I always try my best to pray through and to seek the will of the Lord for the messages here behind the pulpit at Trinity. I never want to just wing it from the hip. I always want to pray and seek His will. I learned that from a faithful man of God. You always are tender to the Lord what He wants. But I am aware of a great sacrifice that's been paid this last few weeks. And it's the widows and the widowers of our church. You knew there was a marriage series happening and your heart's breaking. And you came to church anyway. And I want to say from the bottom of my heart that I love you and that I respect you immensely. And here's what I want to do. This is what the Lord's put in my heart. I don't want to embarrass anybody. My heart is to pray for you and to love you. But any widow or any widower that wants to, I want you to meet me down here in front of this table. And I want Pastor Ralph to pray for you. He can pray for you in a way that I even can't. He's been there. He knows what it feels like. You don't have to kneel. Just stand right here in front of this table. And any widow or widower that wants to come, 
Don, I know what's coming soon. Jerry's birthday. We miss David, don't we? Yeah. Miss Clifton. Church, if you see one of these precious men or women, you come by and hug their neck, shake their hand. Come on, Brother Philip. We'll wait on you. From the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for paying the price, for praying for your pastor. There's some great love stories in this group. You've been an example to us. And heaven will take care of it all. But I love you and I appreciate you. Pastor Ralph, I want you to speak and pray for me. Pastor Winston, I think we now over have over 100 widows in our church. And uh, many of them, some of them are sick, not even able to be here today. But I'm grateful that God gives us the comfort of his word. And he gives us a local church, a place we can be together. And the men that are standing, the widowers and the widows, they're united by a common theme. And that is a broken heart. A heart that's been crushed by the removal of someone they love. And that it's a hole so big that only God can help repair and hold together what's left. Every day in your love is a gift from God. Every day. And don't you miss one day telling who you love, I love you. No one knows what tomorrow will hold. Life is beautiful. Life is fun. But it's oh so short. That you love the Lord and you love each other. Join with me, church family and online family. Join with me as we pray for each other and a prayer for our widows and widowers. Father, we thank you for this wonderful group in our church. Lord, they're so faithful, so kind, so loving. And as Pastor Winston said a moment ago, even during this marriage series, knowing that their spouse was missing, they came, they prayed, they were faithful, they supported. And God, I pray that you would encourage their heart today. We quickly understand that the price we pay in grief only means there was a great love involved. So today, Father, we cast our care upon you because you care for us. And for the promise you made, you'll never, ever leave us alone. May we be mindful to pray one for another and to encourage each other and to be a blessing for the days and hours that we have on this earth to love you, to love this local church, and to love each other. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. And amen. Pastor. Thank you, Pastor Ralph. Pastor Nathan, would you and uh, all of our pastors, Pastor Allen, Pastor Dwight, would you make your way to the lobby, Miss Pam, Brother Chris, if you could help them. Our Sunday school teachers, remember we have a luncheon and a meeting planned for you. So we talk about the future of Sunday school. Please make sure to be in attendance in the Family Life Center as soon as we dismiss all of our Sunday school teachers and family. I want to thank you for a few extra minutes. Be praying for uh, me and Pastor Ralph and the team as we head to uh, Europe to teach a Journeys of Paul. Uh, we'll be gone for a few days, going to Italy and to Turkey and to Greece, following the footsteps 
of the Apostle Paul with about 40 people who will be studying. Just pray for us that God will give us travel mercies and that he'll open up the word in a new light, in a new way that he never has before. Uh, I'm handing the torch off to Pastor Nathan. He's very capable, obviously God's man, and he will be preaching in the pulpit while I'm gone. So be praying for him. Uh, Make sure you're in attendance and have your heart ready to hear from God's man as he feeds the sheep in my absence. I love you. I thank you for your faithfulness to God and to this local church. Be blessed today. Hug your wife, hug your husband, love your children, love God above all, and go in the grace and the mercy bestowed to us all. Good afternoon. God bless you. See you on Wednesday.